0: There was no evidence that Governor, that that, uh, Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence, until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't
1: mess around other
0: people's
1: elections, too. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Rackets Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sadie. Um, As always on this podcast, we talk about the many definitions of the word rackets. Uh, So we talk about organized crime, the mafia, drug cartels, but also white-collar racketeers such as corporate criminals, crony capitalists, corrupt government officials, et cetera. Uh, But on this podcast, we're gonna focus specifically on the drug war in Colombia. And I have the absolute perfect guest on this show. Uh, It's absolutely my pleasure um, to introduce uh, Toby Muse to the show. He's a journalist and documentary filmmaker whose work has been featured in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, Daily Beast, CNN, Vice, and, and a million others. Um, he splits his time in Washington, Washington D.C. and Colombia, and reports on a variety of issues in South America, with a particular focus on the drug war. So, uh, welcome to the show, Toby. Thank you very much, Brian. I'm a big fan, and it's a pleasure to be here. Looking
0: forward to um, an interesting chat about what's going on in Colombia and
1: the cocaine trade. But as I say, I'm a big fan. Well, I, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, you know, off there we, we talked a little bit about the peace process and, and the cocaine trade in Colombia and how there's record level production. Um, and you had a really interesting observation of how those two dynamics are, are absolutely tied together. So just kind of hoping um for the you know, for our listeners, you can maybe explain a little bit about that. Sure. So uh, Colombia's peace
0: process between the government and um the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, this really took place, it culminated in 2016. Uh, there were these kind of images around the world, this historic peace process. It was possibly the world's longest running civil war. The FARC had formed in the early 1960s. It's a conflict that had killed um, hundreds of thousands of people, turned much of the country into a um, into a war zone, so you know the world was really paying attention. Juan Manuel Santos, the president, who you know to his credit really um, bravely guided this peace process forward, won the Nobel Prize, and it was this—it was this belief that there was a new era. Colombia was opening a new chapter. Was turning the page. No longer was Colombia going to be associated with kidnapping, with cocaine trade, with terrorism, with violence. This was the new Colombia, trying to catch up to its neighbours, trying to, you know, get into the twenty-first century, put this political violence behind. Unfortunately, it's not working out that way. Now, to understand what's happening is uh, essentially what we have. Well, I'll just paint a picture of what's happening at the moment. The peace process seems to be fracturing in different parts of the country. We have dissident rebels from the FARC, those who never agreed to join the peace process, who have set up their own kind of militias where they're heavily involved in cocaine trafficking. Cocaine itself is seeing a record harvest in Colombia. They talk about a thousand tons or more than a thousand tons of cocaine Being produced in Colombia. This is a record that Pablo Escobar couldn't have dreamed of that. how How did we get there? Essentially you have to understand the final decades of the Colombian Civil War was heavily focused on cocaine itself. Now we go into the role cocaine played in the Colombian Civil War. Let's just focus on the FARC themselves. These are communist rebels. At some point they decided in the 1990s to institute a policy that became called that was called the Gramaje. Essentially what that means is that the FARC, in territory they controlled, would take a percentage, roughly around 10% on the sale of coca. So the individual farmers in their zones would sell coca to middlemen with the Colombian cartels, the cocaine cartels. If it happened in FARC territory, it was understood that everyone had to pay the 10% or, sorry, I should be clear, the middlemen were supposed to pay
1: the 10% to the FARC. Right. It's kind of like what the, the mafia would call like a protection money. Exactly. And to, I mean, you know, again,
0: to follow, take that um, further along, the FARC did provide protection because these were zones where it was uh, very difficult for the police and the army to operate. So they were getting something back in return for that money they were having this territory so this is how the FARC start with cocaine what happens is is that then coca in particular becomes strategic for the FARC let's take a look at South America and Latin America in the nineteen certainly in the 1980s was filled with guerrilla movements Absolutely. All, but they all start to die out in the 90s the reason why because the Soviet Union collapses, there's no source of income for them to keep these standing armies of thousands of fighters going. You know, it costs a lot of money to keep a rebel army going. Who was the one that flourished and grew larger than ever? The FARC, because now they have this source of new income, COCA. So what you see the FARC do is, the Civil War then becomes, COCA becomes strategic. So you see the FARC, taking over these different parts of Colombia, they're either fighting to take over zones that are already um, heavily, um, uh, there's heavy, heavy amounts of crops of coca, or in zones that the FARC take over, coca is then stepped up, the production of coca. Now, fast forward to the signing of this peace process, what we understand happened is, is that the FARC, and the way I see it, what the FARC were trying to do is, the FARC were probably trying to help the small farmers because the FARC themselves come out of that class. They've never lost that rural peasant route. So what the FARC were telling these farmers is, they were saying, look, the more coca you grow, the more important, the more necessary social funds will be needed for you once peace comes. When the government comes and sees you have five hectares of coca, you're gonna receive a correspondingly larger amount of money in order to tempt you away for these voluntary substitution programs. So in the final years, you see this bonanza of coca growing in the FARC zones. What happened, what the government needed to do when it signed this peace deal with the FARC, it needed to send the police and the army and a functioning civil society to every corner, every nook and cranny of Colombia. It was their one chance to overturn this history of this essentially lawless, ungovernable country from Bogotá. But Bogotá's never held a firm hand over this phenomenally treacherous terrain of what Colombia is. You know, you've got the high mountains, you've got the jungles. So it's always been a weak central government. This was what they needed to do. A historic new chapter in Colombia, a strong central government, the rule of law, send the police in, send the army, protect the civilian population. They failed to do that. So what happened you have massive records amount of coca, and that peace deal was like the sound of a starting gun. And it was now a race between all of the different mafias who traffic in cocaine, and these go from organized crime to narco militias to dissident rebel groups to far-right death squads. They all rely on cocaine, and they all raced to take over. And now you're seeing a corresponding rise in the number of killings of human rights activists the figures are kind of I think one according to one count over 100 human rights activists and social activists have been killed this year alone
1: yeah I, I saw that story um, I mean the old numbers and again since the peace process you know over 200 and that's that's an old figure so I believe at this point it's about 300. Yeah, I mean, you've given us all, you know, a lot to digest. One thing just for the audience, I I just want to give as a reference is, when you're referring to these coca growers, that's actually part of the peace process agreement is that the Colombian government um, has agreed to, as long as these farmers will substitute legal crops, they'll give them subsidies um, to go forward. So basically, your point is, is that, you're saying that there was kind of like an unofficial deal or a nudge-nudge, wink-wink deal with the FARC and the different coca growers um, to say, listen, get as much as you can now, that way that the government can reimburse you as much as possible. I'm assuming that's kind of what you're saying, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. And
0: so, I mean, we heard from, I was in one part of the country. This was in 2016, and already the FARC, and it's a part of the... Province of Antioquia, which is the, whose capital is Medellin. There's a um, a municipality there within Antioquia called Ituango, which is one of the historically violent parts of Colombia. It's kind of seen every every sad chapter of Colombia's violence. Ituango has um, has suffered it. There's a number of massacres that took place there, including a very famous one called El Aro, and also another one called I think it's called La Gran La Granja. These were very famous massacres. They occurred in around the year 2000. There are also massacres in that zone, by the way, I should say, is that um, there are investigations into the possible connection between ex-president Álvaro Uribe and the massacre of El Ara. One of the men who were in that massacre, Francisco Bijalba, a member of the far-right death squads, swore that the
1: ex-president was involved um, in the planning of this. So, Toby, one thing I just want to back up, you mentioned that there's a lot of different atrocities. Um, So, right, the the Colombian Civil War, there were roughly 200,000 people who were murdered, Uh, but it's a complex civil war. And when you're referring to massacres, again, not all of these were committed by the FARC. In fact, um, when you look at the numbers, roughly twice as many human rights crimes um, were committed by the right-wing paramilitary death squads. Um, So when you're talking about that investigation, is it, was this one connected to the paramilitaries or was that connected to the FARC? Uh,
0: The massacres of El Aro. Yes. Yeah also El Aro and I believe the town's name is La I'd have to check that. Uh, These were carried out by the far right death squad, a group that went by the name AUC. Now the AUC kind of really comes into its own uh, in the late 1990s, 2000s, and it, they really turned Colombia into the country of the massacres. The founding, the foundation, Colombia is a, uh, always a complex one. Absolutely. In- In the popular imagination and the story that they've kind of sold to Colombia is that the death squads, the paramilitaries, let's just call them the paramilitaries because that's what, although they dislike the term, but that's a commonly understood term. The paramilitaries arose and they paint this picture that the FARC were roaming through the countryside. The Colombian government wasn't doing its job in, again, providing protection, um, the government wasn't there to protect especially farmers. So these farmers who were far out in the countryside. The guerrillas were extorting, the guerrillas were kidnapping, all of that, by the way, is true. But then there becomes a little bit of a fairy tale begins here. So then the story is told that these kind of farmers got together and would kind of do these patrols and sort of it, it got these self-defense forces together to protect themselves from the guerrillas. And then, again, in the kind of the simplified version of the story that's sold, well, then um, it kind of got out of hand and then some rotten apples within the army, some rotten apples within the police, but mainly the army, um, kind of started to work and then it became a Frankenstein's monster, kind of got out of everyone's control and then kind of got involved in cocaine trafficking. The truth is, is that the root of the paramilitary movement, Certainly, from the um, 1990s, was out of the world of cocaine. Now, I don't know if your listeners have been watching, say, something like the Netflix series Narcos.
1: Right, that was exactly what I was thinking about. Uh, Go ahead. I think I know where you're going with this. Exactly,
0: and it's a you know it's a very well made series, and it touches on it it puts into a story form very complex ideas, and it does a good job of showing how the paramilitaries came out of this um, this group called Los Pepes, which was the persecuted by Pablo Escobar, this kind of illegal death squad that was set up to carry out a dirty war against Pablo Escobar when he was on the run against Pablo Escobar and his, um, and his associates in the Medellin cartel. One of the leading figures with that was a very, very well-known drug trafficker called Don Berner. Now, Los Pepes are working, passing information that they're getting on the streets in the underworld. They're passing it on to uh, the Colombian police and the Colombian army, which is then passing that information on to the Americans. And they're all working together exactly how close the Americans were working with Los Pepes. I don't think that's ever really been Um, made exactly clear. But we know there was an overlap between the Los Pepes and um, the Colombian security forces. There's even rumors that members of the underworld themselves killed Pablo Escobar, but then phoned up the Colombian police in order to give them the credit. They understood that's a rumor. Colombia is a country
1: filled with rumors. Absolutely. Um, Well, I mean, again, when when you're talking about organized crime and drug cartels, there's always gonna be a certain level of certainty with your sources. (laughs) Exactly, and that's why when it comes to, for instance, say accusations
0: against the ex-president, you know, again, it's very hard to know what is true because while there are some people who will accuse him of being involved in um, having ties to the paramilitary movement, Other people will say, well, no, that's Colombian politics. It's this nest of snakes and everybody's spreading misinformation
1: about everyone else. But so that
0: was, um, so back to the paramilitaries though. So they grow out. Actually,
1: if you don't mind, I I just want to interrupt you with one point when you brought up um, narcos because, and again, I feel in a similar way as you do. um, I, I think overall it's a good dramatization of all of these different true events uh, but the w- one thing I did take issue with that show um, when, you, when you're talking of the, the paramilitaries, there was a moment in the show where, I forget exactly how it goes, but something like that, they've got, they've come across this major stash of cocaine. That sort of the line is something like, well, what are we going to do with it now? So it sort of painted them to pretend that, that they just suddenly came into cocaine trafficking um, uh, w- w- when they're on that mission, when, again, there's just absolute you know, truth in that. Um, but again, overall, I would say that the show does a, a pretty fair and pretty accurate representation. But that that one in particular, I had to take issue with. <laughs> <laughs> sure. No,
0: I can imagine. But I, I mean, I think uh, the thing that I really like about Narcos is you really feel that this was made uh, by Colombians. You know, I mean, some of the major producers are from uh, from Cali, Colombia, and I think they have a feeling, as the Colombians would say, for that whole world that really comes through. And that depiction of Carlos Costaño, who's the leading figure of the paramilitary movement, that this was a man who was, I mean, half insane. There are, and he's really, he's really projected that way in the series. There's a very, and it just shows you how crazy this whole level of violence is. When they're walking through some slum of Medellin, they've turned up and it's, um, you know, Medellin cartels guys standing around on the street Carlos Castaño just walks by and almost absent-mindedly shoots a guy in the head and says, for Colombia. That's the weirdness of, you know, what that level of the spiral of violence they were all getting involved in. Carlos Castaño was brought into this war because his elder brother, who went by the name of Fidel Castaño, well, that was his real name, Fidel Castaño, who went by the name in the underworld of Rambo, who had been an enforcer for the kind of mafia, but then one, his friends are killed by Pablo Escobar. So then Fidel, i.e. Rambo, decides to declare war on, um, on Pablo Escobar. Now, I think there's an interesting way of understanding this is that kind of the way over the years I've kind of come to understand cocaine is all cocaine wants is to be trafficked. The, the less drama, the better for cocaine. And by this stage in 19, the early 90s, when Pablo Escobar declares war on Colombia, he was halting cocaine itself. He was actually the major obstacle because he was now involved in this war against the government, his war against Colombia, his war to avoid this extradition when he's on the war. So Pablo Escobar is not helping cocaine anymore. He's actually gone off on a tangent. He's fighting this little war. So all of the other people who see all of the millions that are being lost because of the war decide in the name of cocaine. To take out Pablo Escobar, so it shows you how cocaine makes you a king for a certain amount, and then when you get in cocaine's way, they another king is risen high. Carlos Castaneda, he comes out of this. They kill, um, they kill uh, Pablo Escobar, and then the guerrillas, because they're kind of um, the guerrillas, with uh, are making an offensive against uh, across Colombia. The paramilitaries out of this paramilitary organization that was formed to kill Pablo Escobar becomes the AUC, which stands for the United Self-Defense Forces of Colombia, Alto Defenses Unidos de Colombia. So um, the paramilitaries really make their mark in the area of Urabá, which is um, North, um, terrible, Northwest Colombia, and this is the banana region. And it's always been a very brutal region. And um, the paramilitaries announced basically start carrying out all of these large massacres
1: in the zone. Well, let me just, let me just interrupt. About what time period are you talking about? This
0: is the 1990s and there's something else going on, which is provoking the, well, uh, it's probably the wrong word, but that is causing concern and is causing the Colombian far right to step up its level of violence is that there is a new political party called La Union Patriotica, the Patriotic Union. Now this was a hard left party and they start, fielding candidates across the country, but in particular in Urabah, where they pick up a number of um, elected offices. Absolutely. There, there becomes a political genocide on the party, which is called La UPE, the UP in um, Colombia. They estimate that between three to 5,000 registered members of the political party were murdered by the far-right death squad. And just, I mean, it's, I, I, I don't even know what a precedent
1: would be for that. Um, right. And And that was, I mean, at the time, um, I believe the FARC was actually conducting peace talks at that time. And when, when you've got that going on, it really kind of kills any sort of progress towards peace talks.
0: Well, this has been another revision of history because I was there during the peace talks with the government in the famous CAG one, when they gave over, the Colombian government gave to the FARC, um, a demilitarized zone, which, if I'm not wrong, was the size of Switzerland. It was this immense part of the country in the south um, east of the country, all around this area of San Vicente del Caguan, those kind of flatlands over there, historic site for the FARC. And I remember covering those peace talks, and it was a consistent complaint and demand of the FARC that the government needed to reign in the paramilitaries. Now, at this point, it was very clear Amnesty, uh, Human Rights Watch, were preparing multiple reports showing that there was high-level um, collaboration between the far-right paramilitaries and members of the security forces. At that point, the main their main... Um, the main institution that seemed to have the closest links with the army. Now, the army say, again, it was only some rotten apples, um, and the institution as a whole was not collaborating. Well, that's as may be, but it's certainly at critical points, in critical junctures, in critical times across the country, there was wholesale collaboration between um, units of the army. I mean, we're talking about... Things where the army would kind of wave through trucks filled with paramilitaries
1: on their way to a massacre would just drive through army checkpoints. Absolutely. Um, if you don't mind, and, and I do, it's something bringing up that point is that I also kind of want to bring up the, you know, there's the complicity of the Colombian government, but there's also the complicity of the U.S. government. Um, for example, again, we're talking massacres The I hope I'm pronouncing it right, the, the Mapiripan massacre. That's in the, In the late '90s, Um, and you know, U.S. government officials—they they they basically know that this massacre was committed by the paramilitaries, coordinated coordinated by the the Colombian government. But we look the other way. Um, These documents—they they were declassified several years after Plan Colombia went into place. Our government essentially withheld this information. Again, this is this is um, my take on it, because the FARC, they were designated as a terrorist organization, I believe, back in 1998, um, but it wasn't until 2001 that the right-wing paramilitaries were listed as terrorist organizations. And again, they're both uh, accurate designations, but the fact that the US government took so much longer um, to do so, and in my opinion, that was in order to go with uh, to get Plan Colombia to move forward, and what that is for people who aren't familiar, that's a an arms program essentially to where we we've spent roughly when I say we, the U.S. government has spent roughly ten billion dollars since 2000 um, in quote unquote counter narcotics efforts, but it's really mostly most of that effort has been uh, positioned as a I would call it a counterinsurgency effort to take out the FARC. Um, so again, you have the Colombian government, you know, there's a lot of complicity there and ties between the paramilitaries. But again, the US government for for a long time and, and to this day has looked the other way at this stuff as well.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the US government, it was, it's, I mean, the US has had an outsized role in the Colombian conflict on many different levels. And it's certainly true that uh, Plan Colombia, the billions of dollars that the U.S. was able to pump towards um, to modernizing and training and uh, just arming the Colombian military, were certainly decisive in really weakening the FARC and helping bring them to the table. The FARC, I mean, I think that there was once the U.S. did. I think that the U.S. was pushing for greater human rights within the Colombian military. And I do think there was a pressure, but at the same time, there was a pressure to improve human rights within the Colombian military. And someone actually once showed me a kind of interesting uh, kind of table. And it kind of basically you had, I can't remember the exact figures, but you had one year where essentially there was X percent for the paramilitaries in terms of human rights abuses and X percent for a Y percent for the army's human rights abuses. The next year, those numbers were entirely flipped over. So there wasn't actually a reduction so much in the human rights violations. It was
1: just the author changed. So essentially they outsourced the... Outsource the human rights, uh, the, all the war crimes to the paramilitaries. I mean, we certainly
0: know that members of the security forces, in particular when it comes to uh, infiltration by the paramilitaries, um, that the army, that, that, that there, wa- there was high high level collaboration. I think behind the scenes, the US was trying to reduce that human rights um, violations by the Colombian state because I do believe that the that colombia held the role of being the us's closest ally in the region and Absolutely. it still is and um, still is yeah it still is and i think that there was a fear given the rapid expansion and the quite frankly stunning victories by the farc in the late 1990s when they were carrying out these complex military operations and taking over entire military bases there was a time when the colombian when the farc I think it was something over like over 500 uh, soldiers that they were held, uh, holding hostage. That Not just they had taken them six hours earlier and holding them in kind of in a barnyard or something. No, they had actually hostages that they had taken from all of these different um, military operations when they had taken over, like some of the famous battles, like I think it's Me Too, there was one there. Um, and there's video of that, fighting. And so finally, the FARC have these kind of cages in the jungle where they have hundreds of soldiers. And they said, well, you know, the FARC said as a sign of their good faith, they freed them to hand them over to the government. I think the truth was that the FARC just realized the logistics of trying to, you know, I mean, imagine keeping check on 500 soldiers. I mean, so
1: that... I think and again, this is a group of at its peak roughly twenty thousand people. So, like you're saying, to to, to watch all of them. Oh, I guess wow. really the point I'm trying to make is that essentially the U.S. government, even though the Cold War was over at that point, in many ways they're still really fighting it and conducting it in a way. And like you say, this is the this has been the one revolutionary force that has that has been able to survive after the fall of the Soviet Union.
0: Well, uh, no, I, I, I take that. Uh, but I do think there was, a, there was an element within U.S. thinking, and I'm sure we're actually saying the same thing here, the way they really were worried. When you look at like, the late 1990s and the early 2000s, uh, the very, very early 2000s, I mean, there was talk of, um, the FARC were absolutely talking about that they were going to take power uh, through a violent revolution.
1: Oh, certainly. Um, oh, but, yeah. I'm, oh, I'm not they, saying that they weren't a legitimate threat. Oh, I, Exactly. Uh, And
0: I do think there was a delicate dance where I think on the whole that certainly the State Department could be quiet, would issue its annual report where they would highlight um, abuses by parts of the Colombian uh, security forces. So I I think, exactly, it's hard to say, I think. I mean, exactly how happy were the US with uh, these human rights violations? I think they were trying to see To lower them, because I think the more, even just on practical terms, the more human rights violations there were, the harder it was to get Congress and the Senate to approve, especially Democrats, to approve more funding for Colombia. And again, it's kind of funny to think about this now. During Plan Colombia, there was deep deep conversations were being held in America and in Bogota about how to avoid... The U.S. sliding into another Vietnam War. That's actually how we all right. thought it was going to happen. And now it was this kind of, we didn't know, or I mean, it goes without saying, we didn't realize that 9-11 was just around the corner and the U.S. would embark on its longest um, longest, most expensive military campaigns in its recent history. But that was the fear that Colombia would be this war that the US would not be able to extricate itself from. And, you know, now we look at Afghanistan and Iraq and we
1: right. realize
0: that our fears were misplaced about Colombia.
1: Um, I still don't really see us leaving though. Um I mean we I mean cuz we're not really sending troops we're we're really just sending we're sending weapons. It's it's essentially kind of just a, a military assistance type of well, uh, effort mean, right now. It's again Colombia
0: is the um it, it, now they now they see themselves as partners in this ongoing war on drugs. And again, you know, I mean Plan Colombia is roughly two decades old and no, it was, it was, We're at record level, uh, record level cocaine. cocaine. Not, not much has changed. Now, um, what the U.S. would say is they would say they, that one of the, so in the background, we've got one policy that, that, so another reason possibly why there's so much cocaine, it's not this single answer, but it's probably um, has been one factor, is that the government has ceased aerial fumigation. Now, this is important because there's going to be a new policy about this. Aerial fumigation was one of the favored um, ways of destroying coca crops. So these planes would fly over um, and they would drop this um, thing called Roundup, which is uh, made by Monsanto. uh, I've forgotten how to pronounce it. Glyphosate i believe that's how you pronounce it yeah Yeah, it's glyphosato in spanish but glyphosate glyphosate so they would dump this and it would kill the coca crops now the problem being is that there are a number of issues a obviously you cannot be very um you cannot be pinpoint accurate in this spraying so a lot of legal crops were being destroyed so plunging an already impoverished countryside which saw in it's poverty, the solution being cocaine. Well, you've just made them poorer. The second right. thing just is push that, them into, uh, into growing exactly. cocaine. Exactly. So, well, I mean, it just it was never going to be a long-term solution. A second thing is that we've been dancing around this for a while, and I haven't seen anything convincing. But certainly in Ecuador, they say that this certain indigenous communities say that they think that this could cause cancer. Now, again, I don't think there's been a definitive report that has said
1: that it is cancer. cancer. It's it's a very contentious issue, absolutely. But but there is evidence on that side. But, yeah, yeah, is it?
0: Exactly. And just to be, I mean, to be fair, you know, Monsanto absolutely says that there is no evidence that it does cause cancer, but it is extreme. I just, I, you know, I don't want to get involved in that cause I just. It's, right. I'm not a scientist. You're not a scientist. Exactly. So I just lay it out there that those are the two sides. And so I think that was part of the pressure on uh, President Juan Manuel Santos when he decided to stop the aerial fumigations. And a third thing was this became enshrined um, It was one of the things that the FARC during the roughly five years of negotiations for this peace process, that was one of the things the FARC was absolutely insistent upon, that the aerial fumigation stop. Now, we are back and there is a new government, President Juan Manuel Santos, who leaves office, one of the most unpopular presidents possibly in the
1: world. Right. And that's something that I, that I, I kind of did want to point out. You know, I, I think most Americans would assume that this guy's popular. He won the Nobel Peace Prize.
0: <laughs> he brought a peace process when many people thought that was impossible. Because, I mean, God, man, I mean, the idea of sitting in, I mean, he didn't do this personally, but the idea of sitting in a room with these dogmatic, farc. Marxist, Leninist guerrillas and just hammering out a peace deal, I mean, that's got to be draining because the FARC proudly would say that they don't think in the same time as us. They say we operate on jungle time. And what that means is, is that we've got time. You know, if you want to, you know, you are under your own self-imposed arbitrary city time where everything's much more accelerated. You've got to get a result next week. We, we, we're in the jungle, we, we've got jungle time.
1: Right, so that's, that's I, an interesting
0: I can imagine that must have been an absolutely painful process for these Bogotan negotiators. But one of the things being that, yeah, the FARC insisted that aerial fumigations, and that again goes back to the FARC being true to its campesino peasant roots because the peasants hate
1: fumigation, because for all of the reasons I've listed, um, and if now, you don't mind, because uh, I would like to touch on one factor with the fumigation. Again, I, it's kind of pointing out the U.S. government's role. The U.S. government has been has put a ton of pressure on the Colombian government, and I like to point to that conflict of interest. Um, again, it, it's these U.S. corporations that make a lot of money um, from from the fumigation program. You know, obviously Monsanto makes a lot of money, in particular. Um, a defense contractor named DynCorp um, made made a ton of money from that program. They're the ones flying the planes that drop down those chemicals. Um, but again, I do want to talk about how inaccurate this type of spraying is. Uh, the Colombian Supreme Court actually made the ruling that they had to stop the had to stop this fumigation because they were sued by the country of Ecuador because it was so inaccurate that the, the chemicals were drifting over the border and killing their own crops. Um, and, and to me, the, really the most, um, the perfect example of this is that the late Senator Paul Wellstone, he made a visit there. Dying Corp was supposed to to um, demonstrate just how accurate their program was. So he's standing out there, I think, on some, some mountaintop or something to witness it. But in the process, he actually got sprayed with the chemicals. <laughs> Um, So, again, this is a a program, though, that the U.S. government has put a ton of pressure on Colombia to to reinstate. And like you said, they're they're reinstating it now, but there's a really interesting twist, if you don't mind. Yeah.
0: Uh, Well, I mean, as you say, I mean, just one other thing I, I would point out, which I think a lot of the world doesn't understand, is that the U.S. model that we now see as normal in the um, military contractors that we see in Afghanistan and and Iraq. That was a model that was developed in Colombia. So precisely as you say, these groups like Daincor, Daincor were in charge of um, actually delivering, uh, spraying uh, these fields. And these were all private military contractors. And these contractors became a regular figure around certain parts of Bogota. So you would go for a drink in, say, the Irish pub in the... um, In the 82 road there was one called in fact the irish bar the irish pub and you would just see them you would instantly recognize them and these were the guys who were flying these uh planes now they would occasionally get themselves into trouble so one plane was shot down we think i can't remember if it was had an engine malfunction or was shot down but the end result being that three u.s military contractors were kidnapped by the FARC and they were taken, I believe in 2002 or 2003, the end result being that those became the longest held US hostages in the world. And they were only freed with the Operation Checkmate, which occurred in July, 2008. In fact, we've just recently been celebrating its 10 year anniversary. This was the, just to remind your listeners, this was this operation where the Colombian military were in contact with these FARC guerrillas who were holding 15 high profile um, hostages. Now, though were the three Americans, that there were various army and police officers. They also held the ex-presidential candidate Ingrid Betancourt um, and her assistant Clara Rojas. They. What happened was that the military were in contact, but they were pretending to be an NGO. In the end, they actually pretended to be the Red Cross, which is actually strictly against the rules of war. Right. So they said that they flew into this I uh, into this zone. That they'd been in contact with these local commanders of the FARC. One was called Cesar, one was called Gaffas glasses. Now they then convinced the um the local FARC uh, commanders that in fact They need to take the hostages to another part of the country where other FARC commanders are waiting for them. They get them on the helicopter, then immediately they overpower the guerrillas and the hostages are freed. And it's um, said to be one of the most perfect military operations in recent history. Now, there's been long running suspicions. That in fact, certainly, this is what the FARC believe happened: is that they believe that this was all a show, and really, what had happened was that these two FARC commanders had simply been bought off. That they had managed to, uh, the military had managed to get in touch with these commanders and made them offers they just couldn't refuse—millions Mi- millions of dollars. The I, I've never heard that. I've never heard that part. That's interesting. Yeah, the FARC they swear by. But I mean, um, the military. Maybe, maybe, it's maybe, it's maybe it's true. Who knows? Maybe it's true. I mean, you can understand why the FARC would seek to give an
1: alternate explanation because, of you know, course, you don't want to lose face. they look like a bunch of clowns. But <laughs> so, um, and actually, uh, uh, if you don't mind, I just want to point out one little side note. Um, you're you're bringing up Ingrid bettencourt uh, Her son, I think, like about a week ago. Actually filed a lawsuit against one of those um, FARC commanders because he's inside the U.S. Um, on a drug trafficking charge. Um, so there's actually going to be a, I believe, either I believe a federal lawsuit for terrorism charges um, against one of those commanders. It it just kind of randomly um, surfaced mm. there, like a, like about no, a week I, ago. I didn't know that because Ingrid has kind of Ingrid this.
0: Colombia's a strange country. I mean, it always comes back to this. I and mean, just as you mentioned that, in fact, from the outside, it's very difficult. Most people would assume that most Colombians loved Juan Manuel Santos, when in fact he's deeply unpopular within Colombia. The same can be true of Ingrid Betancourt. I find, I find the majority of Colombians have a very Exceedingly hostile to Ingrid Betancourt. Really, some uh, of the other
1: hostages did as well. They
0: were, (laughs) yeah. I didn't read any of that that information. Exactly. I mean, the three American contractors. I think she was close to one of them, Mark Gonzalez, if I'm not wrong. But I think the other two really didn't like her. There's something about this woman that really divides people, and I don't really understand it because. I don't have a problem with her.
1: I mean, I I don't understand Colombians. um, Personally, if you want my opinion, I think it's because it got so much international media attention. I mean, there's been so many people who've been captured by the FARC. And for a lack of a better term, the, the world generally didn't really care. But then with Betancourt, you've got, I mean, I think she's also a French national. A yeah. French, yeah, a French national. So that's what helped to create these international headlines. But otherwise, again, they've kidnapped, you know, God knows how many people. But there oh, really, thousands. yeah, you know, and there really wasn't much media attention.
0: No, and, I, I, and I can, and I see that. but I think the hatred of Betancourt goes deeper than that. And I, my theory, allow me to venture a theory, is that sure. I think, It's Colombians will never forgive the Colombian who airs the dirty laundry in public. And I think that's what... So her campaigns for president and her previous um, political campaigns had all focused on um, her opposition to corruption, which really is the... You know, I've said before that the focus of everything in terms of the conflict should be cocaine. Go even a step backwards, it all comes down to corruption. I mean, corruption is just rampant in Colombia. The amount of money that is stolen just is, is astonishing. So, um, Ingrid Betancourt, and I think that because she had these long-standing connections links to France, she would travel abroad, she would give speeches about the state of Colombia in Paris, and I think many Colombians just never really forgave her for that. And That's an interesting,
1: interesting point. When interesting. you're doing it
0: internationally and not within... Within their and, own borders. Exactly. And that's all tied up to Colombians feeling victimized by the stigma that they carry, the, you know, again, their mistreatment. Sometimes when they arrive to foreign countries, they turn up, people see the Colombian passport. They, and even today, Colombians can go to places like London, New York, where the people consider themselves urbane, cosmopolitan. They'll meet a Colombian. The first thing they'll do is crack a joke about Pablo Escobar. Mm -hmm. There is no quicker way to seem like an absolute clown than you meet a Colombian in a social event and then crack about cocaine. They're going to be a moron. And even I, after I lived there for so long, I would go back and it would always be, you know, obviously the slowest person in the conversation would always be the one chuckling to himself about his witty remark about how many kilos of cocaine did i bring back you know it just got so tiring but um so, um uh, we were talking about operation Hacker and um sorry you have to remind me of the point we were talking about oh, <laughs> the fumigations that's right sorry and so just to finalize this donald trump has been pushing for fumigations um You could tell he was, um, since he's come in, he was absolutely pushing Juan Manuel Santos to reinstate the fumigations. And now a right-wing president has been elected, Ivan Duque, who comes from the opposition party, and he has said that they will reinstate fumigations, this time using drones, so that's the next step.
1: That to me is very interesting, because I imagine they can actually do accurate spraying. I would would think so, um, with the drone. I mean, depending on how low to the ground it can get. Um. I would think so as well. Now, remember,
0: again, that these people who are all of these narco militias that we had talked about earlier in the conversation who are now taking over the zone that was once controlled by the FARC. Well, again, these guys are going to carry out the same job that the FARC did, which is to just shoot up anybody or anything that tries to rip out the coca crops. Because, again, their funding... Their entire funding comes from cocaine. And these groups, the FARC was using, it's a delicate balance that the FARC were carrying out. And you can you can push the needle along this kind of spectrum any way you want, but essentially the FARC would say that they were using coca to finance the revolution. And to be honest, with some exceptions, I think that's essentially true. I think you didn't see a culture of the drug trafficker permeate the FARC itself. When we talk about certain fronts of the FARC, certain commanders such as El Negro uh, Acacio, I think it was clear that he was neck deep in the coca cocaine trade. But that seemed to me to be the exception. On the whole, the FARC said, "This is a necessary evil." You know, I'm paraphrasing for them, but we are using the money we make from this to further our revolution. The new groups. Only exist to traffic cocaine. They have no ideology. It's just to make money from the drug. So they're going to fight these drones in the lonely mountains of Antioquia and Nariño, where the coca is. Absolutely. You're going to see them setting traps for these drones. Now, how agile, at what height can these drones go? I, I don't know. But we know that when these Dyncore guys would fly out, and they would go spraying over fields that were being uh, protected by the FARC. There was jokes about them returning to the air base to count how many bullet holes were in their planes. All and right. that was serious. You know, it wasn't particularly sophisticated. It was kind of rattling off a AK-47 at the plane as it flew over. But, you know, again, I mean.
1: But again, so they, they didn't really have the incentive to fly low and, and to, to do an accurate spray. Um, they just fly high. They say they did it. Um, and again. It, wherever that thing drifts off to is wherever it drifts off to. And again, they'll, they'll keep making millions. And if they don't, they don't get it that first time, they'll go get a contract or go do it again. So again, they really didn't have an incentive to do an accurate spray.
0: Well, I mean, by the end of the Colombian conflict, you would see this in a lot. I remember someone who has a, um, Uh, much of her family is in the army and um, she was telling me that one of her uncles had told her that they were having tremendous problems in one part of the country, which is called Arauca, where the fighting and these IEDs that the various different guerrilla groups were leaving was making these patrols so dangerous that the soldiers themselves were essentially telling their superiors, oh yeah, yeah, well, we're here doing our patrol. But when they hadn't They hadn't. They'd deliberately gone somewhere else, a safer zone. But what was happening was that there there would be these um, confrontations because in the dark, these different army units wouldn't know who was standing next to them. They would assume that Unit A was actually on its patrol as it says it was. And then they would run into these armed men in different parts of the territory and gunfights would set off. And so by the end of the Colombian Civil War, sure, you would see a lot of people dedicated in the armed forces, dedicated to the idea of eliminating the guerrillas, returning peace. But you'd also see a lot of people who just, the war just didn't seem to make any sense to a lot of people at that point. And they weren't prepared to risk their lives for it. Again, they could be a minority. But I think it just shows you just the pointlessness of that conflict by the end. You know, it was very hard to find Instances of nobility in the final years of that Colombian conflict.
1: So, if you don't mind, because that that kind of brings me back to a point. So, you would think, uh, again, most Americans from the outside looking, it would think that Santos is this popular guy. He ended the war. Um, there, I guess there are a lot of factors of why he is one of the most unpopular presidents. Or again, he's now a lame duck. Um, I mean, I think obviously, for one, it's just unrelated to this. It's just the economy um, and yeah. people, But really, it, you, you touched upon it earlier. He he might have got uh, the peace agreement signed, but didn't implement that process properly. So, so maybe you just kind of tell them a little bit about that. Absolutely. So, essentially, I mean, what a peace process has to be is,
0: I mean, there's a number of factors going on here. Essentially, what happened is when, the, so there was this famous referendum uh, that was going to be held. It was held just after the signing of the peace deal. And that was the final kind of... And Santos himself had been pushed into doing this. Again, let me take a step back. So essentially, you have two important political figures in Colombia. Representing the right wing is the former president, Álvaro Uribe. Then you have President Juan Manuel Santos. They used to be political allies. As soon as Santos came in, and essentially asserted himself when he's elected to be Colombian president in two thousand and ten. You know, Uribe backs him, Uribe goes out and campaigns for him. Uribe had been president for eight years before. He had changed the constitution. Um, at least once and had tried to change it again to allow him to run a third term, that wasn't possible. So Uribe handpicks his successor. This is Juan Manuel Santos, his defense minister. As soon as Santos really kind of asserts himself in 2010 and become his own man, Uribe is furious, absolutely irate. And for the next eight years, Uribe is constantly all over the media and he's you know very eloquent um, he has a charisma to him that has just enchanted a good 30% of Colombians even though they are loyal to the death to President Uribe Absolutely. inspires that and I'd say the majority just kind of want him to go away but he has this hard call. and we're talking millions and millions of Colombians this is not A small minority. It's a good 30%, I would say. But he's on the media every single day attacking his successor. Every single day, he's constantly trying to push Santos's government to the right. So part of this is that Santos is worried about this internal opposition from Uribe. And in order to kind of try to take away some of Uribe's law, he agrees to this referendum. I'm with the FARC. This is about a month before the referendum. The FARC are telling me in private, they're saying, anything less than 70% in this referendum, we think is going to be a worrying sign for the popular support of this peace process. In the end, Uribe and his uh, supporters got out there. They were Passionate. they went out, they knocked on every door, and they won. The no vote narrowly won. It rejected the peace process. It threw really
1: uh, unf- Like 50.2, I think, exactly. is what
0: is what it came out to. Exactly. A, a, a Razor-thin margin. Razor-thin margin, but again, they won because they were they were energized and they had this charismatic leader or either leading them. And so it throws the entire peace process into utter disarray. No one knows what that. Hell is going to happen at some point. Santos and his government, there's missteps everywhere. Um, essentially, you know, and you know, the Colombians need to, the Colombian supporters of the peace process, I think, need to take some sort of responsibility for this. A, far too many of them didn't bother going to vote. They didn't think that they needed to go out and convince other people. And they, when the peace process lost in that referendum, there was no wide-scale marches by all different colombians i know the indigenous came in to uh, support the protest the students held their own marches but there wasn't that kind of cross-section of colombian society under a single banner what saved the peace process as ridiculous as it sounds was i think two things that happened a the nobel prize committee i don't know if this was a last minute change or not But they decided to give the peace process only uh, the peace uh, prize, only to Juan Manuel Santos, and not to be a joint prize to the head of the FARC as well. It was just the Colombian president. Secondly, there was an editorial in the New York Times, and the Colombians constantly read what other people say about them. That's that. That in itself is a story. And the New York Times issued an editorial in 2016 saying Uribe himself was one of the principal obstacles for. Uh, the peace uh, for peace in Colombia that he was just constantly attacking this peace process and that kind of rallied the troops of the peace movement together the government finally kind of got its act together and then the government started to kind of push through the legislation now the implementation of this peace process has not been a success this was supposed to take the FARC the Latin America's oldest guerrilla group and turn them into a disarmed political party. New lives that these were these guerrillas were supposed to get um, a training. They were supposed to be reincorporated into civilian life. The problem was though that that peace, that referendum, it made peace a campaign issue and it polarized the country. What Colombia needed two and a half years ago was the president of the the largest supermarket chain, having his photo taken with a bunch of um, gorillas on the front, ex-gorillas, shaking their hands and saying, I'm giving them a job. They deserve a chance. Will you join me? That never really came through. It became a polarized issue with those on the left supporting the peace process, those on the right saying that the peace process was giving far too much
1: to the gorillas. I should probably just outline what the Uribe and his right, supporters. that was exactly what I was kind of thinking it yeah. seems that the average Colombian feels a certain resentment in all of the benefits that the FARC received would, would exactly
0: exactly and uh, but the benefits can go to some things like the um, there's still the question about if the FARC leadership will face any jail time or not now one of the things that the Reba and his supporters the kind of the opponents of this peace process say that if you have been involved if you have been involved in drug trafficking, you must spend time behind bars. What the FARC is saying is that, yes, some members of the organization, what the FARC essentially is worried about is that there will be a kind of the American style RICO um, kind of statutes will be used against them, i.e. someone in the FARC was trafficking cocaine and was involved somehow in the cocaine business, everybody could potentially be guilty. So, okay, FAC- In other words,
1: like if it's retroactive. So what exactly. they're saying is, if we've stopped after day one and you have you have no evidence that we're committing this after day one, you have to leave us alone. Exactly. And so the FARC are demanding, the FACA also as part of the peace process
0: will have around about 10, if I'm not wrong, 10 seats in uh, the Congress. Right. Uh, the, the, um, the opponents of this peace process say that the FARC shouldn't be rewarded for this. Essentially, that's that's their constant refrain: that the FARC is not paying um, is not paying a heavy enough kind of punishment for for their decades in rebellion. And the government says, well, look, you don't make a peace process with your friends, you make it with your enemies. Other people point out that there's not one guerrilla group in the world is going to negotiate their way into a prison cell. It just, you know, but I think it was another division that the referendum itself showed. And this is unfortunate, I think, but it has to be said. As soon as the Civil War stopped hitting the cities, you noticed a marked change in their attention to that conflict. The people in the major cities stopped caring.
1: Yeah, you're really hitting on something that, that I've noticed as well. I've always felt that Colombia is essentially rural versus urban, exactly. particularly with the Civil War, all of these types of issues. It, it, it is absolutely, um, it's almost kind of a cultural war within the country. Absolutely, and that
0: came across clearly in the referendum, that these zones were actually, who were not suffering the sharp edge of the conflict, were those that were often the highest in rejecting the peace deal. You mm-hmm. saw some of these small towns who had absolutely suffered. I mean, we can talk about towns like Torreville or Haya. These are places who have had decades of tragedy, trauma, death and violence and chaos of the civil war they were voting i think boya hart voted somehow somewhere in the 90s in support of this peace deal torabeo where the uh, in northern Calcutta, i think they were high 80s these were the people who were living on the front line were the ones who most wanted this peace deal those in the cities who could take a more relaxed view often they would be the most violently virulently opposed to this peace deal So I think um, that essentially what I'm trying to get to is there needed to be a moment of unity in the country and that referendum poisoned that well. And what I don't think Colombians have fully wrapped their head around, and I may be being unfair to them or not, is that essentially the window has shut on that peace deal. I think there was a precious golden moment when Colombia could be
1: the next, the, the new Colombia it aspired to be. I, um, I, I read, um, I wish, I'll probably have to look this up and put it in the show notes. I got to find this one. Um, but it was a fantastic study. And uh, basically, it was also pointing to this dynamic where it shows that media has a lot of influence um, on the average Colombians, Colombian's opinion of this. And basically, they were making the point that whenever the FARC um, committed an atrocity, they were always labeled the FARC. When it was a right-wing paramilitary, generally the way the newspapers um, reported, they didn't actually attribute to the exact organization. They would just sort of say armed groups, some sort of like vague terminology. So in the conscience of the, the average Colombian, they're seeing, you know, again, they're seeing I guess the, the weight of the war and the more uh, crime, they're seeing that associated with the FARC.
0: Th- that could absolutely be true. I find I think you touched on this before. I find a very, very common misconception is that, that the FARC and the far-right paramilitaries were equally carrying out the massacres. And there's just any way you want to cut that. That's just not true. The paramilitaries used these massacres as an absolute tool of war. There are abs- actually a f- quite a few in number. Massacres I can think of carried out by the FARC. Now, one of the largest atrocities in the Civil War was carry out, carried out by the FARC when they bombed. But that was, everybody acknowledges that was by neg- negligence. They fired off one of those um, homemade mortars they have and it landed on a church and killed over 100 people. Now the FARC are criminally negligent. Don't Don't misunderstand me, but it wasn't on purpose. They didn't use the massacres as a tool of the war, the way that the paramilitaries did. Now, the FARC have a whole array of crimes they commit. I mean, it goes from recruitment of child soldiers. It goes to making Colombia the kidnapped capital of the world. You know, those, the the kidnapping of civilian politicians, I think is just, I mean, there's no.
1: Right. In other words, you're not trying to carry water for the FARC and neither am I. Exactly. The point I... We're both trying to make is. It, I mean, you can look at the exact um, figures from the Colombian government, and it it's roughly twice as many war crimes were k- committed by the paramilitaries as that it absolutely
0: was. makes sense. I mean, for instance, another tool of war which the paramilitaries used was sexual violence. Mm-hmm. I, is, can, I can I I remember one case of a FARC commander raping a civilian who was uh, who had actually been kidnapped by the FARC i that, that's in all of my time, and I know that within the FARC they had absolutely very strong rules against that and FARC rules by the way, is a consejo de guerra, the military council, the firing squad. This is a question of the, these the, this is a question of hours this would take place in that if there is an accusation of rape of a civilian would come before the FARC's command. This guy could be dead by the end of the day. I would be probably dead by the end of the day. There would be an immediate military tribunal of the FARC holding this. If he's found guilty, he'll be shot. I mean, they were unbelievably strict about those types of things. So, but again, as we say, you know, we're not carrying water for one, but I do think it's important to note the different tactics, the different groups used, because it does reflect the aims that they were seeking um, in carrying out the FARC didn't really want to alienate the countryside
1: right and really- versus I mean you see much more of a, a profit motive um, with the paramilitaries um, for example um, there's a term called parapolitic scandal um, exactly. so in other words the paramilitaries that they captured so much land that in many cases this land was handed over to private businesses. And there's, I mean, literally thousands of different officials, uh, government officials were wrapped up in this thing. Um, I mean, literally roughly 15% of the land in Colombia was taken by force. The vast majority of that was, um, again, committed by the paramilitaries. And like you say, again, um, sexual violence was one of those weapons um, to basically intimidate people to force them to leave their homes if, if they hadn't killed them already. Absolutely.
0: There was a phrase that became kind of infamous during the Civil War, which was, uh, "Do I buy the land from you or do I buy it from your widow? And it just became so common this threat that they would make. And as you say, what the paramilitaries were sometimes doing is that they was acting sometimes at the behest of local politicians who themselves wanted to purchase that land. So what they would do is they would do kind of some sort of sham uh, business deal, so it looked okay on paper. But essentially, these small farmers were selling at the end of a gun. You know, They were selling under gun, uh, with the gun pointed to their head, and these politicians were amassing land, and especially on the Caribbean coast, that became a huge thing, and there they have these enormous farms. You can drive along, it's all flatlands on the Caribbean coast, especially if you get to what they call the Savannah. That's the provinces of uh, Córdoba and Sucre. You drive along these straight highways, and you 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 can travel for forty five minutes just alongside the same farm it 's just all one farm and it 's by the side of the highway and it's much of that is given over to cattle um and yeah i mean hundreds of millions of dollars were at stake so that 's how the parapolitica that was one aspect of this, and it was this kind of unholy union of, you know, these drug traffickers who were carrying out massacres, but they were also taking land sometimes to plant more coca, to overtake, the, to get um, more profit from the cocaine business, but also these local politicians who would shield the paramilitaries when they could, and in return,
1: they would receive this very, very valuable land. Yeah, And, and one thing, again, because we've been talking a lot of stuff um, about the past, but this dynamic is still, it's still very visible. Um, and we, we mentioned it earlier about all these different social activists who've been murdered. Um, and in many cases, a lot of those social activists are what, what people call land, land rights activists, mm. uh, because basically there were roughly 7 million domestic refugees within Colombia. So once the peace process ends, a lot of these people, they go to try to go back to their land, and then they just basically want their land back. Um, but again, a lot of these people who've been vocal like this have been, they've been assassinated.
0: Um, Absolutely. I mean, as you say, I mean, some of these activists have turned up to, and again, this is often happening far away from the, you know, Colombia can be, the wildernesses there are just endless. So this is not like it's occurring in the middle of town. No, you have to go on a dirt road. I mean, there are places in Colombia that can take you three, four, five days to get to. So you're in the middle of the mountains. You're in the middle of the jungle. There's absolutely, you can't count on any sort of, anything that we would understand as the state to protect you. You're out there by yourself. And yeah, these people can often end up being murdered for their attempts to reclaim the land. I often it's um, these endless legal um, wrangles, Some people have returned the land, some people continue to fight for the land. It's it's a very, and on top of all of this is that Colombia is one of the most unequal societies in the world. Colombia, I would say, Colombia is so unequal, it's holding the country back to the detriment of the entire country. Some level of inequality is obviously always gonna be apparent in, in a capitalist society, um, you know, capitalists would obviously say that inequality can be, you know, a, a good uh, because, you know, for whatever reason, So, not to get into that discussion, but right. is so impoverished. Millions of Colombians, if they were able to rise just a little higher, these Colombians could actually become part of a formal market. They would have spending power. All of this, you would have this virtuous cycle would begin. It's this huge untapped resource, but the concentration of political power is so tremendous that the actual oligarchy, and I think that's what they deserve to be called in Colombia, are holding the country back. So interestingly, I'm kind of thinking out loud here, interestingly, major change may come from the upper middle class themselves when they see all of the the, the potential business benefits that this Feudal-like society in Colombia is kind of preventing. To give you an idea of just how concentrated power, and, and power and wealth is in Colombia, when 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 Juan Manuel Santos took over pre- the presidency, he had been the defense minister before. I think I mentioned he takes over in 2010. The major newspaper was controlled by the Santos family. Right. You the president. So t- imagine for a moment. Barack Obama becomes president and the Obama family own and control the New York Times. It wouldn't wouldn't occur to you. And then Colombia, no one batted an eye because they're so used to that concentration of power and wealth. And again, that's, um, and I think that's what this country needs a fundamental overhaul.
1: And again, a lot of that, um, when we talk about this cocaine trade when you're talking about those factors, it's very predictable that you're always going to have somebody in this market who's willing to produce this crop. When, again, when you look at all of those factors, I can't, I can't judge anybody who's living in that level of poverty who then decides to go and, you know, go into that type of lifestyle. Um, well, and like, and there's one thing I'll never forget it. When we're talking about the level of poverty, I, I saw this one report in insight crime and they were talking about the, the paramilitary groups. And again, I've seen, I've traveled to different countries in the world and I've seen really, um, some really dire poverty. But this particular example, it, it, it's just, it's embedded in my brain. And they showed the home um, for some of these, for the new recruits in, in the paramilitaries. And I think this thing is just a completely dilapidated home. It, it's no more than like seven by nine, smaller than a prison cell. And four people are living inside of it. And in this particular group, again, you had to murder somebody just to join that group. That was the upward mobility, was to basically move into a jail cell with three other men. Um, but then mm-hmm. they were willing to commit that kind of a heinous crime. They were just, again, that that's the conditions that these people are living in, because basically like we said, it's two different Colombias. There's there's the, the urban area and the rural part, which is just basically completely ungoverned. All of these factors, as far as the cocaine production, it, it's completely predictable and I I don't really see an end to it. Um, do you? It's hard to see.
0: I mean, it's it, it's hard to see. I mean, I'm sure as your listeners know that there's something that's called the balloon effect. And this kind of applies to Peru, Bolivia, and Colombia, the only three countries in the world who have ever produced cocaine. So essentially the theory of the balloon effect is it's like holding a balloon. If you push down coca production in one part, well, then that raises the potential price for it. So growth shoots up somewhere else. Push push down in Bolivia, it shoots back up in Peru. And it's just a kind of whack-a-mole. Um, right. I, I don't see any radically new proposals on the table now I think this ties in with potential fears about Ivan Duque. I think I've met Duque. he absolutely seems a very decent interesting um, knowledgeable cultured man but his campaign was noticeably short on proposals I mean there's just no way around it now he was um, and he was certainly a critic of the peace deal. A, a very harsh critic of the peace deal. He's, if, he, if he gets what he wants, now there's a question about whether he'll be able to achieve this or not because parts of the peace deal were in part into, put into the Colombian constitution. But he's talked about that the leadership of the FARC should go to prison. That peace deal no longer exists at that point. The peace deal would right. have been gutted beyond recognition. So, he, I mean, what he's saying is well, no, we just want to modify it. But again, a modification of that size of that uh, it would essentially be the end of the peace deal. Now, I, in terms of fighting the drugs, again, Colombia was fumigating for years, and right. they just and they they've bounced back. So, uh, will there be? A kind of immediate reduction to coca in some parts of the country? Absolutely. I'm sure when you've got a record crop, I'm sure there's a lot of low hanging fruit that you right. can just go out. But would that be an answer to um, cocaine? Uh, but no, because as long as Europeans, as long as Asians, as long as Americans, as long as Africans want to buy cocaine, uh, Developing country, a very poor country, will see the profits to be made there. And the profits are just staggering. I mean, just the back of the envelope, just to give you an idea of, I mean, these are all very, very rough figures. But if you take, you can buy a kilo of coke for, I would say, probably $1,000, maybe a little more $1,500. You get that kilo of cocaine to London. That kilo of cocaine is now worth in pounds one hundred and fifty thousand pounds because you're essentially going fifty pounds a gram the rough roughly in London they've studied the purity of cocaine and they figure it's about
1: thirty percent you're saying the the street value, not the wholesale value oh this is all street value exactly so i, I mean it's it, you know exactly um yeah in the u s you know I've read around. Uh, 25 grand for a kilo Australia is like the, I believe the highest price in the world something like 80 grand for a kilo so yeah it, d- it depends upon the market but like when you're starting out at a thousand dollars do the math on that <laughs> exactly I mean you just cannot and in fact um,
0: so a friend of mine um, a financial journalist in Colombia, says that he thinks he's found out the only business that is more profitable than this. And that is smuggling gasoline from Venezuela, where it's subsidized. It's essentially almost free. Um, And then you cross it into the Colombian border, and then sell it in Colombia. And that is a phenomenally, um, this black market in gasoline. Now, funnily enough, they actually mix the two up. So they have this thing called the caravan of death, now, these are done by the indigenous of the community of the YU. These are the kind of young, reckless young men of the YU. They drive in a caravan all of these uh, cars into Venezuela. They drop off drugs. They then fill their cars with uh, gallons and gallons and gallons of gasoline and then race back into Colombia, dropping off the gasoline. But they travel at like 120 kilometers an hour, 130 and I've seen them drive past. The idea is to kind of avoid, outrun the police. But any kind of, even the most minor of accidents, <laughs> traveling at 130 kilometers an hour in cars filled with gasoline, well, oh, you can yeah. imagine the results. So the caravan of death, um, yeah,
1: you know. It's interesting you bring that up because um, some journalists, they say that the illegal gold trade in Colombia is, more than, is worth more than the drug trade. I completely disagree but it brings up a point that, that I'd like to address is again, I personally you may disagree, but I'm, I'm for ending the war on drugs, and I feel that they could use these police resources for stuff that isn't consensual crime. I mean if anybody knows anything about the illegal mining gold mining industry in Colombia, I mean it is absolutely devastating to their country. I and mean, in many cases it's, it's basically the similar criminals there. but again it's just another one of these examples where, foreign policy is is affecting Colombia, and yet so many people from outside of Colombia have this really just snarky attitude and very limited um, view of this country. Absolutely. I mean, I, I obviously, you know, covering the drug war uh, for a long
0: time, I've come across, um, you know, many different points of view on possibilities. Certainly, that's one of the options, the legalization of drugs. I would say, though, that, you know, your biggest... Problem with that, though, is that have you ever met someone who hasn't studied the kind of drug war or isn't a libertarian, a classic libertarian, who isn't kind of shocked by the proposal of, of legalizing cocaine? I think
1: that's the biggest opposition. This oh, the stigma? Absolutely. I mean, if, if you talk about marijuana now in the U.S., the, the vast, well, not the vast, but we're talking the low 60 percent of Americans support full legalization at this point. Now, when we talk about the hard drugs, you talk about heroin, cocaine. Roughly like ten percent of people. And again, a lot of it has to do with stigma. If you say, "Are you for ending the war on drugs?" the poll numbers are a lot better. Now, if you say, "Do you want to decriminalize or legalize heroin or cocaine?" again, it's like something like ten percent. Um, so yeah, they, oh no, I'm not saying that it will happen. I, I, again, I'm just a, I'm just a strong uh, proponent of ending. No, no, no. War I get it. Again, I mean, I'm very. I'm very sympathetic
0: to that argument as well. Um, I I I I don't know what the solution is at this point. I mean, I've just been covering this. I, certainly, when you just cover the drug war um, for so long, you know there is just a kind of grinding inevitability about it. I just don't see how it can be definitively won or lost either way. So we just kind of grind on, and I, until you know every. Every world, I, I don't see what they can do and they've tried that here you know they've tried that in multiple different countries
1: next year or so your um, listeners are going to see an avalanche of the stuff out okay so basically i just kind of want to just bring up one last issue i know that you're you've got plans to write a book on Colombia, yeah. so if you would just maybe just tell the audience um maybe a little bit about that or you know, when or so they should look at the bookshelves.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so I'm going to be writing, I've, again, I've been covering this for, um, last 15 years or so. So I'm writing a book about the whole cocaine industry and really kind of focusing on the people who make up this very weird ecosystem of cocaine. i you know, I'm trying to bring out the people who have never really been interviewed before. Um, These can be the different cartels, the different mafias, but also the police people involved in this. And I'm trying to kind of put, I'm trying to tell the drug war through these people's stories. Because I think they're just fascinating individuals who live in the darkness of this drug war. But their lives are constantly, they're dancing on the edge of these blades. You know, any mistake in the drug war and your life's over. But it's also a fascinating psychology of how these people get drawn into the world of cocaine and often find that once they've stepped through that door, the door slams shut behind them and they find that it's almost impossible to leave. I think that's a common theme I'm seeing as I kind of get this book ready. I'm gonna be in Colombia for about the next four months um, and I hope to finish writing the book by around August of 2019. And so hopefully, um, sometime in 2020,
1: the book should be out. I hope to come back on the show to really, you know, when the book's ready. Oh, of course. No, you're welcome. Anytime. Um, no, and that's what you're going to do. I'm very interested in. I'm definitely going to grab a copy. You're you're bringing sort of the human aspect. Me personally, again, obviously I'm very interested in this topic. A lot of it's really more the geopolitical aspect. Um, what you're doing is really bringing some nuance to the story that I, you know, again, I, I really haven't read before. Um, is there any other work you want to just tell the audience about, or uh, if you would also just let them know how to, how to follow you on whatever social media platforms you like to use.
0: Uh, yeah. I'm so I'm on Twitter at, at Toby Muse so that's T O B Y M U S E. That's my Twitter handle. No, I mean, really I've just been focused on this book for um, in recent months and now kind of actually looking forward to stepping away from the the news and kind of, you know, get involved
1: in the kind of long, in-depth investigation that the book is going to require. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, just want to thank you um, for coming on to the show. Um, and everybody who's listening, absolutely go follow him. That way you can keep up to date and you'll know when the, when the book is ready to come out. I would also like to uh, thank the audience for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five star rating, share it with your friends. Uh, But really the best way to support the podcast is to go out there and grab a copy of my three book series, Rackets. It's on the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. Uh, So on that note, again, I'd like to thank everybody. I'd like to thank Toby and talk to you later. Bye-bye. It's a big club. And you ain't in it. I am concerned that
0: the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become
1: difficult for us to to prosecute.
0: You don't have a license.
1: price is $250,000, plus a monthly payment of 5% of the gross. Of all four hotels, the story. only.